Welcome to the Educause Integrative CIO Podcast. I'm Jack Seuss, Vice President of IT and CIO at the University of Maryland, Baltimore County. And I'm Cynthia Golden, Associate Provost and Executive Director of the University Center for Teaching and Learning at the University of Pittsburgh. Each episode, we welcome a guest from in or around higher education technology as we talk about repositioning or reinforcing the role of IT leadership as an integral strategic partner in support of the institutional mission. So today, we'd like to welcome our colleague, Melissa Wu, to the show. Melissa is Executive Vice President for Administration and Chief Information Officer at Michigan State University, which she joined this last year. Melissa, we've all known each other for some time, but why don't you introduce yourself to our listeners? Oh, great. Thank you, Jack. And thank you, Cynthia, for inviting me to do this podcast. I've known both of you for many years, and I really appreciate this opportunity to reconnect. So the way I started in higher ed, actually, I did not start in IT. So I was finishing up my PhD at the University of Illinois and met someone and needed to stay on campus. So actually, I first started out in the field of radiation safety. And then somewhere along the line, a few years in, I realized that all of my other duties as assigned had something to do with computers in the Environmental Health and Safety Office. And I thought, wait, (laughs) I actually enjoy this, but not because of the technology. What I enjoyed was that technology could be used to connect people and break down barriers of communication between people. And that's actually what drew me into technology. And from that point, I mean, I literally switched in my early 30s to an entry-level job as a Unix system administrator and worked myself up from there. And so since then, I've been at the University of Illinois, the University of Wisconsin-Milwaukee, the University of Oregon, Stony Brook University, and now Michigan State University. And I don't know when I decided I wanted to be a CIO after I'd made the switch into IT. I think a lot of it was simply that I think I got frustrated, honestly, and maybe this is what drives a lot of us, at, at things that I couldn't change or I didn't feel I could more directly change. And in order to really be one of the people that that changes things or is a change leader, it does mean becoming a recognized leader in some cases, though I will also say that a recognized leader is not the only way to lead change. And I think that's what really drove me. It was this combination of seeing technology as a way to break down communication barriers between people, but also just the desire to be able to be at the table in helping to drive change. You know, as, as we talk to our colleagues, we, we do hear a lot of different stories about, you know, <clears throat> what drove people to, to the CIO role. And you've just been through some additional change because I know you joined Michigan State as CIO in December, right? Mm-hmm. And by September of this year, you were promoted to executive VP with responsibility for human resources and planning and facilities and other other areas. Can you talk about this change and and why it happened, especially here we are in the midst of a pandemic? Well, part of it is is situational. And I think a lot of people can resonate with just sometimes being in the right place at the right time. So what had happened is that this position went vacant just after our president, President Stanley, began his time at Michigan State University. And, And for context, he's only been at MSU for a little over a year now. 
Mm-hmm. And he's actually been serving in that role at the same time as being president for over a year. And I think he decided that, you know, he learned a lot and he said he learned a lot and it helped him a lot understand the administrative side of the university. But because there's a pandemic and because he's an infectious disease physician and specialist, is that he realized, you know, it was it was time for someone else to take over the responsibilities. And he and I have a really strong trust relationship. And I, I appreciate his confidence in me in taking over this role since I have been primarily in the IT vertical. So what has this expanded portfolio really meant for you in, in a practical sense? I think in a very practical sense, it's helped me to look at the potential for greater efficiencies and effectiveness across administrative areas. So, I mean, we have multiple contact points for our campus community, our clients and our customers. We have duplicative services in in areas. Now, I'm not saying, you know, I'm not going to say the phrase shared services, because to me, that's jumping to a solution without actually understanding what your problem set is. But I see real opportunities for better connections between the areas. I mean, right now we're talking about better support for different gender identities as well as honorifics in our systems. Well, really the people who should be driving that are HR as well as the academic side that handles student information systems. It shouldn't be IT, but I can be the one that brings everyone to the table because I oversee both areas. And that's just one of many areas where just from a practical sense, and that's what it's meant to me is that more ability to create change in a positive way. So that's a great answer. And and it really is interesting that the background that you have in IT, I guess, has given you visibility over the years to so many of these systems and processes that that has sort of helped give you new insight? Or are you, are you feeling like it's a major learning effort in some of these new areas that you hadn't anticipated, such as, you know, HR policies or budget development or things like that? I mean, I do have some learning curve, but the point is that there are great leaders in all the mm. different verticals. And I really don't presume to micromanage because they know their um, verticals better than I do. I I just need to be able to support them and know enough to be able to support them and also just see that the commonalities between the different administrative areas. So I, I think being in IT, though, has been very useful because IT sees pretty much everything. I mean, it, it may be at a very shallow level, but we actually have insight to pretty much every part of the university. Mm-hmm. And I think that's really helped. Since we've been dealing with the pandemic, we continue to live through times where there's great uncertainty occurring. Can you talk about, you know, what your role has been in getting the campus prepared? I mean, my role has been really just to make sure that the great leaders that we have within our enterprise IT organization, as well as those in the the campus units, such as, you know, the colleges and the other administrative units, are, you know, understand what the challenges were to flip to remote and then actually go from remote to a more thoughtful online teaching, learning, and working. So i Really, I couldn't do my job without all these other people who are doing a great job of leading this flip and continued improvement of how we support our campus in this time. So, Melissa, how have the faculty responded to to all of this on your campus? And I, I feel really, I have a lot of sympathy for the educators because they were asked pretty much within one day to do a remote flip back in March on our campus 
And the switch to a more thoughtful online also happened on a relatively fast time frame. So, you know, so we're we're trying to provide a lot of grace and understanding to our educators who who may be a little lost, but others have really, really reacted well. I mean, we very quickly put together a structure for faculty pedagogy support and technology. I mean, really, really fast. We hired a number of postdocs very, very quickly mm-hmm. to, to make sure that they could actually work directly with educators who, who needed help in bridging the gap between pedagogy and technology. For me, it's been one of the busiest periods of my life. How are you managing the stress and time demands for both yourself and for your team to make sure that um, you're staying healthy and, and capable for the long term? It's all about priorities. It's because in, you, you have to have priorities and communicate them and actually recognize them yourself. I mean, there's a saying a lot of us have is that if everything's a number and priority, nothing is. Mm-hmm. So I do live by that is that we have to establish top priorities that we work on and we let other things go. We have to. It's a pandemic. And as far as the team goes, at least I can speak for the, the people who report directly to me on the IT side, is that something I've held to for years and years is that I communicate to them directly when I you know, bring on someone new or when I start a new job and to say, I will not email you after 5 p.m. on a weekend, and I will not email you at all on weekends. I will not answer your emails after 5 p.m. on a weekday or any time during a weekend, because really, I don't want you watching for my emails. I don't think that you should feel obligated to do that. I think you should spend time with your personal life, your family, if you have one. If something is that darned urgent, guess what? I'm texting or calling you, and that almost never happens. So just anecdotally, I was at my last place of employment for a little under four years. I only made one call in mm. that entire time across the multiple members of the direct reporting team, only one. And things were really, really bad. So let me do a follow-up and ask you. So for me, I find that because we're home almost entirely. If I don't get outside and run or walk or just do something at the end of the day, my brain starts to turn to mush, that I have to have this sort of separation between work. And and I may work later at night, come back to that, but I have to sort of get outside and just see people, even though I'm socially distanced, it's just being able to wave to neighbors. Is there something that you're doing that sort of helps keep you grounded and attuned to be able to sort of keep you operating both at a high level, but also sort of managing your stress and and the challenges that happen in today? Well, for one thing, I have an incredibly supportive husband. I mean, he's just, it's amazing how much he tolerates about from me sitting in front of a laptop for about 10 hours a day. That said, I actually, interesting enough, do not have a permanent office in my home. What I've done is it's, it's entirely a temporary setup. So what I do is I break it all down at 5 p.m. and I put it to the side so that I'm not tempted to actually mm-hmm. dig in and do any real work. And then I set it up in the morning when I, when I start. And that's my way of delineating going to work versus not being at work. So I've sort of artificially duplicated the whole process of, of actually going to the office. And I can air quote that, but no one's going to see it. <laughs> and leaving the office. And that's how I manage it. I mean, and, you know, I've gotten back into bicycling, which I'm going to have to stop doing soon because it's, we're about to head into fall in Michigan. <laughs> and you can imagine what that's like. 
Yeah, we were just talking about buying a treadmill. <laughs> <laughs> we've got the the stands for you know, mounting our bikes, and we've got a you know a new monitor upstairs, and so we'll both mount our bikes and just you know use that. Well, you know, kind of pulling the sort of the, the whole pandemic topic together, I, I think that a lot of us are, are really trying to look for the positive aspects of the pandemic on higher education. And, and I guess I'm curious from your perspective, you know, what kinds of things um, do you think might stick? What, what kinds of things are we doing now that maybe we weren't before that, that you think might stay with us in the long term? I think that we as people have rediscovered what it is to give grace to others because, you know, it's, it's been a really key part of survival during the pandemic is making sure that we have some level of empathy and, and grant grace to people. On a more practical level, I think it's demonstrated to us that there are some roles in IT particularly that can go to permanent remote working. And the advantage of also overseeing HR now is that I've had that discussion with our head of HR and we're going to put together a policy for true remote work. And so we'll see what comes of it. But, you know, certainly that's not for everyone and it's not for every role. But there are people that are more comfortable working from home now or working remotely because it suits their their life balance better being at home. Yeah, I think we found the same thing. When you think of the EDUCAUSE term, integrative CIO, what does that mean to you? And how have the last six months either amplified or challenged your approach to the role? Well, I don't know if I define integrative CIO the same way as everyone does, and perhaps I do. But what I see in it is, again, it, it harkens back to what I said earlier about how the CIO sees a little bit of everything on a campus. And a truly successful CIO will be able to integrate all that knowledge of all the different processes and areas across campus towards truly supporting the business of the university. And as far as the last six months or actually as pandemic has gone, I think it actually has really amplified that aspect of the CIO role is that we've all gone remote. Every function, nearly every function of campus, of course, not all of them, since I actually oversee, you know, infrastructure and plan has gone remote. And so that knowledge of how everybody else works has really helped, I think, the IT organization best support all the parts of campus. And of course, we've got more to learn, but at least we have the the beginnings of a conversation with every area of campus to ask them what they really need now. Mm-hmm. So I want to do a follow-up on the integrative CIO because I think you're in a unique perspective and something that you mentioned there intrigues me. And, and one of the things that I have thought about as, as I have interacted with different people is the role that facilities has in thinking about sort of the life cycle of the infrastructure. It's a different world because it's you're talking about buildings which last 50 to 100 years or more. You're talking about other systems. But it has struck me that these other areas which have a much longer history of being part of universities have brought practices and thinking 
that could be advantageous to IT, which has a different sort of threshold in its time domain for its systems, but we don't quite practice the same life cycle thinking. And I'm curious if in this molding, it has changed some of the ways you would have approached IT as you've gotten this perspective across different areas to be infusing that into the technology culture. Interesting you should ask that, Jack, because I thought about this issue between campus infrastructure and IT infrastructure, I think at least two campuses ago, and the cha- the difference in time span. And it's, it's a fascinating one to me, but I, I will say that I see more similarities than differences. Okay. And so, for example, because they're both central support units, they both have similar challenges with funding models and, mm-hmm. you know, what is subsidized versus chargeback, that sort of thing. So, the time frame issue is an interesting one. I think you can still deal with some things the same, but because of the 50 to 100 year building life versus you know your five to seven year turnover on IT capital assets, that changes how you might fund things. You, you would probably borrow money to handle a 50 or 100 year building, but you're almost certainly not going to borrow money for something that turns over in, say, you know, a three, five or seven mm-hmm. year period, because you'll still be paying debt service to, against it after you've turned over the equipment. Right. That's interesting. Thank you. So, so we should switch gears here just a little bit. And, and Melissa, you've been really active in our professional associations, including Educause. And in fact, I think that's how we first met <laughs> through through yes, it was. Was connection. Can you talk a little bit about your engagement with groups like Educause and Internet2 and others? And what role do you think they have to play in supporting our institutions? Well, there's at least a couple major ones. I mean, one is as a convener of the different professionals in the field. I mean, that has been one of the most important aspects of being involved in Educause and Internet2 and, and other professional organizations is the organization's role in bringing us together and allowing for the, the person-to-person professional networking. It's been incredibly important to understand what other campuses do. You may not do exactly the same thing or solve things in exactly the same way that another campus does, but it's very helpful to hear what others are doing, if only for a certain amount of self-affirmation that you're maybe, your campus is maybe not as behind as you thought you were <laughs> on something. <laughs> because the truth is we're all behind on something and we're all ahead on something. I mean, if there's anything I've learned, it's that. I think the other is also a collector of good practices and documenter of good practices and sharer of good practices across the discipline so that we're not all reinventing the wheel. And I think both Educause and Internet2 have been very good about ensuring that we all have access to this information and that it's widely shared. So, Melissa, we've known each other since before you were a CIO. And you've done amazing work now at a number of institutions. But you had difficulty landing your first CIO job. Can you talk about perseverance and the lessons you learned in that part of your journey and what you would say to people now? Well, for one thing, I I can't say enough about all the people that supported me through my struggle, and I will use the word struggle, to land my first CIO job. I mean, for many, and hopefully this resonates with people, it's very similar, but actually about 10 times harder than landing your first management job. 
because everybody wants somebody who's already been one before. Mm -hmm. Well, the problem is, you know, there's always a first time, right? Mm -hmm. So there were a lot of people that I'm forever grateful to that, you know, put my name in with search consultants when they were contacted by search consultants for open positions. There were people that were just great mentors and just kept cheering me on because there were, I mean, there were so many interviews including finalist interviews. And I was starting to say at the time, I feel like, you know, basically forever a bridesmaid, never a Mm -hmm. bride. (laughs) I'm not sure a guy can say the same thing, but you know, then that's what I was saying. And I think what really helped, and it's something that I counsel people about now is, you know, if you made it to the finalist level, that means that both you and the organization think you're qualified past that. And so you should feel good about that. You're qualified. Mm-hmm. Past that, it's just a matter of understanding of whether or not both of you can work together. Mm-hmm. And that will not always be the case. So I also counsel people, like, if it doesn't feel good and if you don't feel as if you resonate with the, the atmosphere and the culture of, of that organization, then you really need to pass it by because you're not going to be happy. They're not going to be happy. And it, it'll all end in tears. Well, right. not necessarily, but you know what I mean. No, that's great advice. I think, yeah, I think it is too. And, and, you know, along those lines, I guess I'm interested in hearing what has been most influential or what or who has been most influential in your journey as a CIO in the sense you you just talked about mentors. And, you know, as we think about, you know, the roles that they play in our career, what advice do you have for peers who aspire to be CIOs and and IT leaders? Mentors are very important. And, you know, the problem is if I start naming people, we're just going to go on and on and on forever. Mm -hmm. I I did a couple talks in the past where I tried to put up photos of all the people that I owe so much to and then kept running out of space (laughs) because there are so many people, including both of you, by the way, calling out to both of you, Cynthia and Jack, you, you are fantastic mentors to me early on. So my advice to people is there's no such thing as one mentor now. You should be looking at multiple mentors. Most of these are going to be informal. And it means reaching out to mentors who satisfy what you're particularly looking at at any particular point in time. So at some points, it might be your need for sponsorship. And of course, that means a mentor who knows you well, because hopefully they won't sponsor people that they don't know well. In other cases, it might just simply be for friendship or professional friendship, someone that you can rant to or bounce ideas off of. I mean, so there are so many different functions of a mentor that no one person will be the end-all be-all for you. And so that's my advice is to look for the multiple mentors, depending on what you need in your career at any particular point in time. That's great advice. I want to add just a quick follow-up and thinking about your, your mentorship model You've been a passionate advocate for DEI activities, both in Educause, Internet2, and at your institution. What are some thoughts that you have for how we can be making sure that we're bringing forth the next generation of leaders that's going to be diverse and inclusive? Well, for one thing, as hiring managers, we do have to look at our own inherent biases first. The other, which is harder, are just what I would call the implementation issues is, and these are hard because I've done them before, is to look at things such as your job descriptions, the way that your search committees function, what their inherent biases are. I mean, and these are harder than they sound 
So for example, right now, we're actually working with HR, which is really interesting since I oversee HR. So this might be easier than around requirements, specific requirements stated for a computer science bachelor's degree, you know, or related degree, mm -hmm. but you know, they always say that. The issue I have about that specific requirement is that it is known that there are far, far fewer women and people of color who have bachelor's degrees in computer science. By having that as a requirement, you have artificially narrowed your candidate pool. Right. So right up front, there is a structural problem. So we need to be looking at cultural and structural problems going forward. That's great advice. Thank you so much, Melissa. This has just been uh, wonderful to get to talk with you and just um, thrilled that you were willing to join us. So thank you. Well, thank you so much for asking me. And it's so great to connect, reconnect with both you and Cynthia. I mean, it's been a while. So thanks so much. It's great to talk to you again. Thank you so much. Thank you.